The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Acts chapter 2, starting verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. What a great passage, and what another, we see another very common passage in Scripture. For those who are familiar with Acts, we've already begun to see up to this point how Jesus' followers and what it meant to be a faithful disciple of Jesus was a very multifaceted, it was a, it was a comprehensive identity, it wasn't just uh, reading scripture and learning about the Bible and learning facts about God and about what Jesus did. It was comprehensive. It was about their life. Just in the first chapters, the couple chapters we've seen, we see Jesus preparing his followers to, to live all of life that is lived out of the gospel in, in everything that they do, not just in what they learn, not just in the word and relaying right information, but a, but a witness, living out a witness that that defines the people of God in the entirety of who they are. It's this all-of-life witness for Jesus. And the first five verses describe this amazing moment of transformation where 3,000 people in Jerusalem that witnessed the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and they asked Peter, what does this mean? And when Peter told them about all that Jesus did and all that he said, the Bible tells us that they were cut to the heart cut to the heart with what they heard. What a phrase. I mean, can you imagine, can you think about what that means? What does it mean to be cut to the heart? I mean, I think you know what it means just by that phrase. I think you know what it feels like. Cut to the heart. It's that feeling of like, oh, right? You know, that, that, that it takes all the wind out of you because there's this deep awareness of, of who you are, the truth that, that convicts your spirit. The things that you're hearing that are so true that it, it just, it cripples your heart. And then they say, what do we do? What do we do about this? Peter says, you need to repent. You need to repent of your sin. You need to trust in Jesus. You need to change the mind, your mind, about everything that you believed about Christ and receive him. It is the grace of God that stabs them in the heart realizing that they, they were walking away from God. They were living lives in rebellion against God, and they were cut off from God, and that pierced them. And then they see the grace of God, and it comforts them. It's the grace of God that becomes the driving force for their life. 
3,000 people experienced this wonderful transformation on that day. The biblical scholar and teacher John Stott says this, the gospel is good news, not only of what Jesus did, but also of what he offers as a result. He promises to those who respond to him both the forgiveness of sins to wipe out the past and the gift of the Spirit to make us new people. Together, these constitute the freedom for which many are searching, freedom from guilt, defilement, judgment, and self-centeredness, and freedom to be the people God made and meant us to be. And so it shouldn't be too surprising that right after we see this outpouring of God's grace on his people and them cut to the heart and conviction of sin and embrace of God's love and grace, we see right after this event of Pentecost, we see what do they do next? What do we see the spirit-filled, changed and transformed, grace-filled people of God doing? How are they living their lives? And he shows us what their lives look like. They are devoted to Jesus. And in their devotion to Jesus, it overflows in a devotion to many other things. We'll see four devotions today. A devotion to remembering the gospel, a devotion to shared participation, a devotion to an unaffected joy, and a devotion to public faith. Four points, one extra bonus today than normal. First, let's look at this. Let's look at the devotion that flows out of a people who are devoted to God because they have been filled with the love of God, the grace of God, the presence of God. It is a people that are devoted to remembering the gospel. It could be said that on the day of Pentecost, God opened up a school. He opened up a training center for people to know, to remember, to rehearse the truth of who God is and what he has done. A school of learning, a school of reorienting their lives around the gospel that's so easily forgotten. It's easy to see that these early Christians were, were people that were carried along by this supernatural power. Do you picture people like that? The early church, the Holy Spirit's poured out on them, and they're just carried along by this, by this, by this supernatural force of God and doing everything right. And we see the, all the good that they did, and it's easy to say, well, of course that they were that way. They just had the Holy Spirit poured out on them. They could do no wrong. But that's actually not true. There were people just like you and me. Maybe the very next day after Pentecost, someone who had just been, who experienced this magnificent event, filled with God's Spirit, embraced His grace and love, and were changed from that moment on forever. And the next morning they wake up and they say, no, no, again, tell me again, what was the significance of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and that he's with me now? Because I forget. How does this change my life? Yesterday it seemed so clear. Yesterday I was, I was so filled with an, an, an unshakable joy. But today I woke up and I, re- and I realized I'm just, I'm just as broken. I'm just as grumpy. I'm just as confused as I was two days ago. Can we meet again and can you remind me again of of what it means to know and follow and love Jesus? And so on that day, the Spirit of God opened up a school. They gathered to remember. Like athletes, these Christians gathered to train. They came together to learn and rehearse the story of Jesus from the apostles. How many of you, when you come across this phrase, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, do you picture the, all the followers of Jesus, all these new disciples just kind of in, in a row of those old school desks and they all have their number two pencils and their, and their legal pads and they're, just, they're in school. 
They're just in class and they're, and they're, they're learning. I picture it like that sometimes. These, these followers of Jesus devoting themselves to the teaching, almost like in a classroom. I'm sure there was time of systematic theology training. I'm sure there was time for, 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 for training that happened in the classroom where they sat and listened and, the, and the, the apostles taught. But at the heart of this kind of teaching is something different. The word is, uh, is didache. The word is didache from where we get that didactic method of teaching that we, that we use today. It's not just this systematic teaching where I relay information to you. It's something different. It's one of storytelling and, and transferring information for the sake of, of transforming their lives. It is teaching something to the point that your life is different because you now know this information. The, 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 the apostles were actually discipling these new baby Christians in the church. And they were coming to rehearse it, to ask questions, and to learn about how does this change the way that I live tomorrow and in my job, and in my family. The end goal of this didactic teaching was to believe, to trust, to mature in the faith, to know the story of God and how they fit into it. That was the kind of teaching that they gathered to be a part of. Our worship tells a story. Our worship service tells a story. We've, we've mentioned that every week. We, you see it in your bulletin. We tell you that the order of our service is meant to uh, it, is, it is arranged in such an order to tell a story that God is holy and worthy of our praise, that we are sinful and deserving of his punishment, yet Jesus saves us and forgives us and, and comes to us and makes himself, makes his home in us and among us, and he blesses us. To tell the story of the gospel is not that we are merely learning information and learning doctrine and learning scripture, but that we would be invited to find our place in that story and live different because of it. And not only to find our place in the story, but to never leave it, to live in that story every moment of every waking and even sleeping moment in our life. There's a biblical scholar called Michael, named Michael Goheen, uh, he's, a, he's a professor and a teacher and an author. He, he lives up in Phoenix. He's, many of you at Holy Cross know him. He's spoken uh, to, to you uh, personally. And he says this. He, he says, our culture, we know how to enter into a story. Our culture is good at, at storytelling. And in his book, A Light to the Nations, he says, you know, whether it's a movie or something like that, we are invited into a story. And so you're watching Black Panther or Avengers or... Uh, you know, Boss Baby, I don't know what you're into, but you're, you're, watching, you're watching a movie, and the movie is, is, is inviting you into a story. And for a moment, actually for a couple hours, you are transported into a different world, and you have no problem existing in that world. You have no problem taking on the fantasy or the, the creativity or the innovation of that story. There, there is nothing without limit. No rationale or irrationale is off limits. And you willingly go into this story and, and immerse yourself into the storyline of the characters and of the plot. And then after the movie is over, you are, you, it's, you, you are invited to leave that story and go back to the real world, right? But some of you will kind of carry on into that story for a little longer, right? You'll dress up like these people. You'll, you'll, you'll you know, <clears throat> I mean, there's a whole genre of... Uh, of, of people and websites dedicated to this sort of thing uh, and, and festivals, right? 
But you, you, you are meant to be immersed in the story, to leave that story and go back to your life. And here's something amazing about the gospel story that is so evident here and also in, in what Michael Goheen is telling us. The gospel story is an invitation to enter into that story and never leave. In fact, every other story in our culture says, come into this story, but then go back to your real life. The Bible tells us that the real life that we live in is actually, that's the mythical and fake and broken and, and, and wrong story. It's the gospel story that is the true story that we are meant to enter into and stay in. And we are to live in that story and everything that we do in our work and in what we call real life, that story is supposed to transform our real life story, our day-to-day -day story. And this is what we see in Acts chapter 2. We see people that are transformed by the love of God entering into a story that, they, that, they, that, is, that is imposed on their life and filled them and changed them forever. And now we see them living out this story and they are never meant to leave it. They are meant to stay in that story and live and talk and act and treat people as if this is the dominant story of everything. And it is. The gospel is different. The gospel story is different. How do we do this? How do we enter into that story and never leave? How do we enter into the story of God, the story of the Bible, and never leave it? We rehearse it. We come together and we remember it. We come together and we tell it to one another. We come together and we remind each other of what this story is that we are a part of. The story that tells every other story. The story that is the ultimate story, the dominant story of God. The only one true story that has ever been told. We tell it to one another and we rehearse it. That's what the early church did. The scriptures, the coming together for fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer are all aspects of a steadfast devotion to remember this gospel story, the good news that has come to them, the good news to which they belong. Our Sunday worship is not merely a spiritual activity in which to engage. It is the unique setting where the invisible things of the gospel story are made visible. What you're doing today, what we are doing as we gather, is so unique and so special and so other in the midst of our, of our culture and our days that we come together is so special because it's the things that are ultimately important that are so invisible are made visible. As we share in the meal together that, that, that is provided to us by Jesus and His body and blood broken and shed for us, it is where we, we are immersed in this story of Scripture and reminded of God's good and true wisdom. It is where we are reminded that we pray to God. He receives our prayers. He hears us. And He speaks to us. You see, every Sunday when we get together as God's people, it is not just a spiritual activity. It's not just something that we should do. It's the most important thing that you will do all week. It is the most special and unique thing you will do all week. God's people brought together, feasting on His Word and His Supper, communing with God through prayer and song because we can, because He laid His life down for us and He draws us to Him and He reminds us that He will never leave us, never forsake us. It's one of the reasons why the Bible says, don't neglect to meet with one another. 
Don't neglect to get together. Don't neglect to make this day a priority to gather and remember God's good story. It's easy for me to say that to you. You're here, right? So all these chairs, you go and tell these people this, okay? So I need you need you to listen to a sermon. But it's good for you to remember too. Do you really, do you believe that what you're doing right now is the most important thing you'll do all week? It is. And it's not because of me. It's not because, wow, you really think you're a really great preacher. No, it's not because of me. It's not because of James. It's not because of anything that we do humanly. It's because of what God is doing in our midst. It is because of what he calls us to as his people. It is because we need to remember this story because it is the, it is the lifeblood. It is, a, it is like water. If we, lose, if we do not have water, we die. If we do not have the gospel, we die. We need to remember. It's one of the reasons the Bible tells us, encourage each other to not place anything in their way that will hinder us from getting together and doing this. Do not make anything a priority on this day that would hinder you from gathering with God's people to rehearse this story. Do you believe it's the most significant and important thing to do in your whole week? Remembering, rehearsing, repeating these themes over and over again. We see God's people doing that because we, are so, we're so, we so quickly forget. We so quickly need to be reminded. And so they, they were devoted themselves to this remembering, this rehearsing. And that's what we do today. Do you come with that attitude even, that you know that when you, when you gather with God's people, it's not just to, to sing some songs or hear a message. Do you come preparing your hearts, saying, God, I'm, I, I need to be re- reminded. I need to reorient my heart and mind around these things. I need to rehearse it. I need to remember what I have forgotten. And so my heart is open, my mind is open, my ears are ready to hear, my eyes are ready to see this good story that you have told us. And so we prepare through prayer and through readying, readying, readying our heart. You know, it's busy. We get out of the house, we may usher our kids into the car and into church, and we are not prepared. Many of us are not prepared to even rehearse. And all we can do is sit and listen. And so we need to be devoted to remember. What else do we see God's people devoted to as we move on? We see a devotion to shared participation, a shared participation or sacrificial participation. i got to change my notes in the screen at the same time. Sharing faith means sharing life. To share faith with one another, to share Christ, to share in Christ, to have these common, to have a common salvation and a common forgiveness is to share our life. A commitment to Jesus implied a commitment to one another. It was strange to consider a commitment to Jesus without a commitment to one another. To love Jesus and not love his church is nowhere permitted in all of Scripture. We see this displayed in the early church through their sharing of their possessions. And I can admit, and I'm sure you can admit, that this is quite unusual. This amount or the the level, the magnitude of the sharing is quite unusual. What does it say? They had everything in common. They shared everything. They sold their possessions and gave as people had need. 
They distributed as people had need. They had all things in common. What an, what an unusual reality of this early church. You know, instead of being distracted by this, this overly or unusual communal idea that they had here and thinking, man, that's just ridiculous. I couldn't imagine ever doing that. Consider why they did this. Consider if a family or friend at church shared a need to you or you became aware of a need that someone had in the church and the first thing through your mind was, is there anything at our house that we could sell and use those proceeds to help this person in need? Probably not. <laughs> Maybe, and that'd be wonderful if it was, but I imagine there might be, oh, someone will take care of that. And it's not a malicious thought, but, but, but I think we've become accustomed to thinking, well, they have people in their life, and, or maybe you're thinking, do I have an extra one that I could give? I don't have an extra one, and we're using that one. And so, do you think, this is, this is the attitude of these people here, this, this sacrificial sharing, this shared partnership. Is there anything I have that if I gave up, it would help them have it? It's the attitude they had. In fact, some ways, our gener- your generous giving to, to the church and the work of Holy Cross is a way of doing this, of sharing all that we have. Our giving to our deacon fund is a way to, to help our, our deacons t- uh, with the ability to meet practical needs in our church. And so in a way, your, your generous giving just to the general fund or to the deacon fund is a way of you saying, I'm participating, I'm, I'm sharing my possessions, I'm sharing my wealth, I'm, I'm giving generously to the good of, of others. Out of a love for God, for sure, but also a love for others. You see, our giving is a, is a manifestation of our friendship. Let me say that again. You want to be a good friend, we sacrifice, we give, we share. Everything you need to know you learned in kindergarten, right? We share, we teach our children to share. What does that mean? We tell our kids, the reason you have this toy is to be a blessing to others. Do we believe that for ourselves, For our toys? For our possessions? For the things that we have? Do we have an attitude of, I want to have everything, that, I want to be in, have everything in common. I want to help anyone in need. The giving of our wealth for others is not only a, a strangely counter-cultural practice, it's the way to love one another and express friendship with one another. This kind of attitude is so unique and so counter-cultural to think of, of our material wealth as an instrument for loving others. What, what motivated this unusual generosity? Well, their sharing was no doubt the concrete expression of their share in Christ through the Spirit. The reasoning goes like this. If we share in fellowship of God together through His Spirit, is there anything in our lives that is truly our own private possession? The answer is no. (laughs) If, through the power of the Spirit poured out on us, it connects us to God and we share in that wonderful reality, is there anything in my life that's mine and only mine? No. They believed this was at the root of their motivation and their their identity as God's brought together people. The early Christians had no private lives that belonged solely to themselves. Because if God owns us, 
as He purchased us by His sacrifice through His blood, then a lifestyle of biblical fellowship begins with the surrender of the notion, my life is my own. And we begin to think the reason why we might become stingy with what we have is because we, are, we believe at a heart level in an individualized kind of Christianity. That when, when we talk about words like transformation and redemption and salvation and restoration, all those words are primarily individual and private. That's about what God has done for me, but it's about what God is doing for His people. Transforming a community, restoring a community, redeeming and saving a people that are brought together, meant to be the family of God. A person devoted to Jesus will invest energy, at least in some ways, to the bearing of burdens of the people God brings into their life. A lifestyle of spirit-filled fellowship begins with the surrender of all that we have to the ownership of the Lord. Isn't that what it means to be a Christian? At a basic level, what it means to follow Jesus is to say, my life is not my own, my life is in your hands. I lay my life on the altar of your grace for your glory. And that's manifested, that manifestation goes beyond a personal salvation of trusting in God. It overflows as we release all that we have with open hands to be a blessing for others. And so we see this unusual devotion of the early church to share the burdens of others, to be burden bearers, and to participate in life together with others. Let's see another devotion that they had in common. Devotion number three is this, a devotion to unaffected joy. Would you look at verse 46? And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So we know that in this early church there was at least some good wine because they, yes, I think that's what it means, they received their meals with glad and generous hearts. I want you to notice in this passage two very important emotions that go together here that we don't often see together. Verse 43 and verse 46. In verse 43, we see the word awe. Elsewhere, it's often, often translated as fear. It's the Greek word phobos, where we get the word phobia. This is often and mostly translated as the word fear. As God's people, that outpouring of the Spirit, came in their lives, receiving the grace and love of God, they gathered together and fear came upon them. A fear of reverence. And then, in verse 46, glad and generous. You don't see those emotions together too often. Fear and gladness. It's usually one or the other. We often live in, in one, or one camp or the other. Either we're, we're glad and we have full hearts of gratitude and we are thankful and we are joyful or we're afraid. We're sober. We are reverent. And often we don't have those two together. What does it mean that these, these early Christians were devoted to embracing both of these together. Glad and generous literally meaning exaltation and sincerity of heart. What a strange pairing. Here is what it means. What's the reaction of the people who are part of such a community? The kind of fear in the Bible of awe is appropriate reaction for people that are, the, a reaction that is induced by a very clear understanding 
of one's own existence. It refers to someone's self-understanding. It refers to a person's emotion that fills them when they realize in a moment exactly who they are and why they exist. It is the reaction that comes to a person when they realize in that moment what life is truly all about. And it humbles them. It stops them in their tracks. It makes them reverent. You ever have a moment like that? You ever have a moment where it happens in an, in an instant or you, are, you're, you realize that in that moment you say, this is the most important thing. This is what life is about and everything else, it's just, it's peripheral. I get that, I get that feeling every time I have a blueberry cobbler. You know, this is, this is why I am here. You ever have that feeling? What induces that kind of awe? What induces that kind of wonder, that fearful gladness, that unaffected joy, where you are, you, are, you are so focused, you are so understanding that this could kill me, but instead it's beautiful and I want to draw closer to it, like a bonfire that is, that is 30 feet high, and you feel its warmth, and it's beautiful, and it's majestic, and you can't help but look at it, and can't help but draw close to it, because of its warmth, but you know it can destroy you because it's powerful. And you leave with a sense of, of gratitude, fullness, and of the beauty that you witnessed. A sunset, the vastness of the ocean as you look out beyond where your eyes can see. The disciples, the early Christians, felt this way when they were with God's people. When they gathered together, they said, this is what it is about. It is about God's forgiven people gathering together and sharpening one another and sharing all that we have and receiving the gifts from others and giving with love to others. And we are reverent. We are in awe because God has visited us. And he has visited us. And he's not here to punish us. He's here to bless us. If you were to look through Acts, as we will come to do in the weeks ahead, we will see two common pairings of emotions that often don't go together. We're going to see this again. They were filled with two realities, fear and joy. God's people moved in their life and lived in all that they did with fear of God and joy. God visited them, and He came with power and mighty works and wonders that would make you and I feel terrified if we were to witness them. And it was evident, and everyone knew it. God showed up. When God shows up, He makes His presence felt. He doesn't come quietly. And it, sh- it sobers us, and it, co- it, it, it sobers us to our bones. It shakes us to our bones. And yet, He wasn't coming to punish. He was coming to bless. God does not show up like a landlord or debt collector to demand payment. God does not show up like an angry father ready to punish. God does not show up like an impatient mother ready to scold. God does not show up like a judge ready to hand down punishment. He shows up to save, to fill, to sustain, to empower, to redeem, and to embrace forever. And so they know who he is. 
They know that he is powerful. They know that he is good. And they know that they don't have to be afraid because he has come with good news. And when those two emotions come together, this is the emotion of what, of what Christians should embrace. This is what Christians should be devoted to, understanding this proper view of God's holiness, his transcendence, his power and, and mightiness, and also his goodness, his gentleness, his kindness, his accessibility, his imminence in our life, that he is among us and he is good. And so it should be for us today, these early disciples were devoted to awe and joy, with humility and with worship. Being devoted to embracing a combination of joy and reverence as we go about our everyday life. Knowing that we could be cut off from God's fellowship, but because of His grace, we never will be. And our lives are in His hand. We are fearful of God, knowing that He's the author of it, and the creator of it, and He sustains us, and we are held in his salvation, purely by his might. And that should terrify us. And then we should feel ultimately glad because he's promised to be with us because of what Jesus did for us. There's fear and awe. There's sobriety in this message. There's, there's fear in the, the, in the message of Peter when he stands up and, and gives a sermon to those first believers. He says, When they say, what do we do? What do we do in light of all you've told us? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Just that verse alone I want to think about just for a moment. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. There's fear and awe in this. How is there fear in this message? Without faith in the gospel and what Jesus did, without turning from sin and surrendering our lives to Jesus and crying out for his mercy, our sins are not forgiven and we are cut off from the grace of God forever. And so the message of the gospel is one of fear. So anytime the message goes out to say, this is what Jesus does and if you trust in him, you will be, your sins will be forgiven. This is a dose of sobriety. Because if we don't, we are cut off from the very thing that we need and the very thing we were created for. But on the other hand, there's also a great joy in this message, that you can be forgiven. That the offer of God's love goes out free-handed to you. That you can be forgiven. No matter where you are from, no matter what you have done, forgiveness for our sins against God is no longer tied to a certain ethnic heritage as it was in this setting prior to this, but through faith in the gospel. Faith in Jesus' work on our behalf. A Christian without awe and without fear and without a sobriety of of mind of who God is does not fully grasp how sinful he or she truly is. And a Christian without joy doesn't fully grasp how loving God truly is. And so the Christian should be devoted to grasping with both hands the reality of of how needy we are and how good God is. It it has been said that God is more, we are so much more deserving of his punishment than we even think, and he is even much more loving than we even deserve. Both of those together creates this sense of awe and joy in the life of a Christian. 
And lastly, we look at, look at this last devotion, a devotion that we see to public faith. Countless sermons have been dedicated to the passage we have read. And countless sermons have been preached on Acts 2.42, which describes the practices of the early church, the early church that is spirit-filled community. Many churches have based their mission statement based on Acts 2.42. And they say, this is what we're going to do as a church. These are healthy characteristics of God's people. We will be a, a learning community. We will teach. We will meet together. We will break bread and be generous. And yet that picture alone gives a very lopsided view of the church. Attention should be given in Acts 2.47, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The early Christians were not so preoccupied with their Bible study. They were not so preoccupied with their life groups or their prayer or their burden bearing and sharing with one another that they neglected the, that the witness of their life of faith would be seen by a watching world. They were not so preoccupied with an inward looking in of how they needed to grow that they forgot that people were watching how they lived. Do you see this? It is critical to notice that the church was not and is never to be a community so secluded, so cut off from people and the world that we are not being an active and faithful witness just merely by the way that we live our lives and the way we worship. The remedy for a church that is far too inward-looking or just focused on themselves all the time is not to neglect our prayer life or our worship or our gathering. And it's not to say, you know, we're focused too much on ourselves. We need to focus on people outside. The remedy is actually to be the church that we were always called to be. A people that were continually uh, devoted to God's word and prayer and rehearsal of this story and a life that is, that is the result of trusting in God and knowing that people are, are watching us and that our very lives are a witness to the gospel we believe. What's the church intended to be? The church is intended to be this, an irresistibly attractive alternative to the way of life of the surrounding culture. The church, our church, ought to be an irresistible, attractive alternative to how the culture says, this is what is good, here is what is beautiful, here is what will help you, here is how you will become the person you were meant to be. Because all that leads to is just further burden, further, further slavery for, to our own efforts, a further striving for our own salvation that we will never attain. And the church ought to be a witness to the world that says, here's an alternative. That is actually everything you've ever longed for. That it's beautiful and it's good. That it's true and it's just. What an amazing thing. What if we were like that? What if your lives were like that? Is your life an irresistible and attractive alternative to everything else the world says? If they were to look in your home and your family, if they were to look at how you work, if they were to look at how your leisure time and how you play and how you celebrate, would an onlooking world saying there is something so uniquely and strangely satisfying about how you live and it's different from everything I've ever pursued. And it's strange, but I kind of want it. What could God do through us 
What could he do through your family? What could he do through us as a church as we feast on the means of grace that he has given to us? If we don't neglect to give ourselves to growing in our faith, to meeting with one another, to sharing what we have wherever we go, filled with gratitude to a God who loves us and will never leave us. This is truly a contrast community on display for all to see. And God so powerfully works through that. He works among them. He works through so powerfully. He works through this community that were devoted not to their inward growth and their communal living. They were devoted to being a people that put their faith on display for the world to see. And God worked through it. You see, a private Christian, there's three kinds of Christians. A private Christian has lots of friends with all kinds of people, yet their faith is private. A private Christian is the kind of person that their name comes up in a conversation that I have, and I say, oh, I know that person. We go to church together. And that person says, he's a Christian? I never would have guessed that. A private Christian is one who has friends with non-believers and with Christians both, but their faith is private. A secluded Christian, on the other hand, is a Christian that only has friends with Christians. They just, you, they just know the people in their church and in their small group. They, they cling to others that are like them and believe the things they believe, and yet they have no outside or very few outside true friendships and relationships with people that are outside the church. And yet we see a third kind of Christian here. We see the public faith. Not a secluded and not a private, but a public a public Christian that pursues meaningful friendship and a sharing of life with those in the church, with brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet pursues authentic and meaningful, life-giving friendship with those outside the church, allowing their lives to be on display for the world to see, and God to use that as a means of His grace to work through those relationships to change people's lives. A life of a faithful community will come both word and deed that cut to the heart of a watching world. It will overturn the world's most fundamental beliefs that, re that rest in a striving for acceptance, an abuse of power, a using others for our own personal advances. I want you to think about this passage, and I don't want you to brush over too quickly. The word devoted. I don't want to brush over this too quickly here, that they devoted themselves to these things. We should linger on this idea. The Spirit-filled community occupied themselves diligently with and held fast to these four means of nurturing their new life in Christ. They wanted to honor God, to follow Jesus, and they nurtured that new life in Christ through these four devotions. The Holy Spirit worked through then those channels to create new life in them. And God, through His Holy Spirit, will work through these precise channels to bring about lasting growth and change in your life. Did you know that the way you probably want, God, I want to be a mature Christian. God, I want to have peace that is unshakable. I want to have joy. I want to have wisdom. God, would you give me all of these things? And He says, yes, I will. But he gets to choose the channels. He gets to choose the instruments. He chooses the methods. And they might be different than the way you want. He says it's going to come through your, your regular worship and rehearsal of this story. It is going to come through your sacrificial participation with others. 
It's going to come through this burden bearing that you have. It is going to come from you going outside of this protective envelope and, and bubble that you live in. And it's going to, be, to, it's going to come through you sharing your life with others. And you're going to think, do you have any idea what's going to have to change in my life in order to do that? And he says, what do you think I'm after? You see, we want to follow Jesus, but we don't want to change anything. Which sheds light on that we're not really wanting to follow Jesus. Or not the Jesus in the Bible. We don't get to rewrite God's desired means. We don't get to rewrite the story. And the gospel spreads in our life. And the gospel does not spread in our life if we neglect these means of his grace for us. These four things expressed through a devotion of God's people will give a witness to the world and to one another that God is truly present among us. We don't need to wait 50 days like the early disciples did for God to show up. At Pentecost, God's presence came to the church, and good news, he hasn't left. He's still with us. Our responsibility then is to humble ourselves before his leading, to give ourselves to the demonstration of his presence, remembering the gospel, sharing with one another, abounding in joy, and proclaiming his love to a very tired and weary and broken world. May it be so among us. Let's pray together.